I am sure any new Muslim who has tattoos or they had a previous relationship or they have a, a, a habit which they find hard to kick, like drinking or whatnot, I'm sure they know what they need to do with their life, right? I'm pretty sure because they made the choice to say la ilaha illallah and they sacrificed a lot. So I don't think they need a reminder in terms of these other types of things. There was a guy who asked a sheikh, it was an atheist, by the way, how are you going to feel if you die and you find out that, you know, there's no day of judgment, there's no heaven and hell, how are you going to feel? And the sheikh answered, I'm not going to feel as bad as you would when you find out there is. Yeah. And at the end of the day, I'm not saying religion is fear-mongering and Islam is fear-mongering, but if you don't want to have fear of Allah, of your creator, and you want to be logically sold on religion, there's a lot of intellectuals, Hamza Zortzis, Muhammad Hijab, there's too many people, Subur Ahmed, too many great scholars, too many great advocates of the truth, too many great cosmologists, too many great physicists, too many great even students of knowledge like Rami that are just out here doing their due diligence. Open your eyes and inshallah, God willing, you are guided to see the truth. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not change the condition of a person until they change what's within themselves. So if you guys don't change what's within you, you're not going to get Allah's guidance. You're not going to get that. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh and welcome back to the realest podcast in the dunya, the three Muslims podcast. Today we're joined with a very special guest, Sabur Ahmed. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. How are you brothers doing? Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. We're good. It is an honor, alhamdulillah, to, uh, to share the stage with you today, to have you on, to be able to discuss um, because subhanAllah, you're somebody who I have been watching for a while, especially when it comes to da'wah to uh to the non-muslims you know people who deal with you know uh, talking about secularism and human rights you had a debate with cosmic skeptic and all of that so my first question would be how would one approach dawah to non-muslims and how does it differ when giving dawah to muslims very good question so firstly um thank you for inviting me here um i think i think it's always a very good format when you have a bunch of people talking together rather than two people talking and um, especially nowadays that, you know, people like these longer sort of segments where you get a lot out and you guys had Hamza and other really good guests as well. So may Allah make this grow and um, help this, you know, channel flourish, inshallah. So I think where to begin first is, you know, you always start with why, <laughs> you know, why do you do something? So if your why is correct, then your how and your what fall into place so i think if we go back to what is islam islam is essentially a relationship between the creation and the creator a relationship which is pure um, which is not affected by associating partners with god calling upon other than god you know all of our love hope fear trust you know everything sacrifices for god alone so if we truly understand Islam, then dawah is something which is just part and parcel of that. Picking up from, you know, the, the stories of the prophets, what, what, what do we see? We see the prophets go to their nations, they discuss with them, they articulate Islam to them. So, you know, sometimes when I find people who make a, you know, demarcation between, okay, practicing Islam and, you know, dawah is an additional thing, or, you know, uh, dawah is, is seen as something uh, almost like, you know, okay, it's, it's, it's just like a extra thing that we do. I always find this very strange because firstly, if you have the, uh, the ability to say la ilaha illallah, if you have that blessing, that's only because your ancestors or you were given the message. So for you to think that 
it's not your duty to go pass it on to others, I would say you actually don't understand your own gene- genealogy, how you were Muslim in the first place. So, you know, we have brothers from different parts of the world uh, here as well. And, you know, if you go back to why you're Muslim, you know, it's very interesting how Islam spread. However, through the centuries, what we find is that this job of conveying Islam became obsolete. It, not obsolete as in the duty of it, but as in the, the Muslims just didn't do it. Muslims live next to uh, many people who they didn't give the message of Islam to. And later on, you know, we find this in, in the history of Islamic empires as well, that, you know, those people, when they left, um, you know, like, for example, uh, the Ottomans left the Greek territories. We find the Mughals uh, that their, you know, their empire uh, crumbled and and you know we also have you know the Muslims in northern Nigeria who didn't evangelize to the Muslims uh, to, to the people in the south what we find is that other people came in and you know sadly we find that in the Greek territories you know all sorts of things um, uh, have taken place like for example Ottoman mosques in uh, have been converted or destroyed in fact there was one Ottoman mosque uh, which was uh, turned into a theater um, and what was really sad was it was actually a theater that held adult type productions, you know, really sick stuff. And when we go back again to uh, the Mughal Empire, we, we find that, you know, there are people who simply still don't know what Islam is. And likewise, uh, it was really sad when I was in northern Nigeria is that even though, alhamdulillah, there's a lot of great brothers and organizations and people who are giving dawah there now. Um, Many people in the north, and, and this is me speaking to uh, people from the, the Hausa uh, uh, tribe, uh, you know, they admit that actually they didn't uh, ha- help others to accept Islam. And what we find is that the Christians came in and um, some very startling, <laughs> some very startling and, and uh, interesting figures that between 1885 and 2020, Christianity grew by 50-fold in Africa, 50-fold. And um, Southern Africa, which was mainly indigenous African belief, um, they became Christian. And even some of the Muslims, uh, you know, in in the areas where there was a mixture like Malawi and, you know, these type of Central African places, what we find is that, you know, Muslims converted to Christianity as well because the Muslims didn't have enough knowledge about Islam. And also the Christians came in with their education, with their hospitals, with their schools, with all these types of things. And we don't talk about this as a tragedy, that there are millions of people alive today who are actually Christian, but their ancestors were Muslim. Like this is something which, you know, we don't talk about. But is this not a tragedy? Is this not a loss of a large part of the ummah? And if you go back to, you know, these types of places like we visit, like Malawi, you you go to a village, you speak to, and this is not anecdotal. This is me on the ground. And I've seen this myself. You ask somebody, you know, what, um, what, uh, what's your name? And a Christian uh, would say Hassan. A Christian would say Khadija. (laughs) This is, this is incredible that our religion is a religion which is very evangelical, which is actually right from the beginning, a religion which is there to actually engage with other worldviews and have these dialogues. Yet Muslims are passive and they're, they're very meek. You know, Alhamdulillah, people like uh, Sheikh Ahmadi that came forward to try and wake us up. But I would say there's a lot of work to be done in, in terms of the dawah. Yeah, subhanAllah. It's, it's amazing that you bring this up because me and Fahid were actually in a class yesterday and, and we were talking about, you know, what is Islam? And a lot of the time people are like, they, they say the five pillars of Islam, you know, we pray, we fast and that's it. It's like, well, if you look at the Sahaba, radiallahu anhum, like the Sahaba that was sent to, I believe, uh, Najashi, his answer was, you know, we were, we were basically, we were messed up people. Islam came and fixed us, you know, and other Sahabi, they mentioned it's to feed the poor or even Allah in the Quran mentions you know, uh, people who feed the poor or people who don't feed the poor are kuffar and so on and so forth. And Islam is so much more than we believe this and we pray. It is this this propagation of this belief. This Not that this is a way, this is the way and that we must teach people with beautiful character. 
with the utmost beautiful character like the Prophet and it's amazing because I actually you reminded me I believe it was a statistic that I heard of when talking to a few um, reverts for a revert program that they were working on it was something like I don't want to give a number, but majority of reverts actually leave Islam. They leave the fold of Islam after reverting. And that's, that brings another layer to a problem that we have with the passiveness from Muslims, whereas we get them in the door and it's like, okay, now it's like survival of the fittest. Astaghfirullah But well, You say survival of the fittest, but survival of the fittest would be charitable. I would say there's sometimes an active, um, not witch hunt, but this very mm-hmm. negative attitude towards mm-hmm. You know, like an oppression. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, uh, sorry to interject, but yeah. I just remembered something that happened literally down the road. So oh. down the road from where this uh, office is, and there's plenty of masjids here, so no one will work out which masjid it is. I saw this myself. I went to go pray in the masjid, and um, this guy walked uh, into the masjid uh, with his shoes on, and he literally just just came into the entrance. And uh, this Pakistani uncle came out and started shouting at him, how can you walk into the mosque with the shoes on? And he's a non-Muslim guy. And he said, can I have a copy of the Quran? And uh, the uncle uh, said to him, there's, there's, we don't have a copy. I was like, whoa, what is going on here? So I finished my prayer, came out and I said to him, I'm looking really, uh, just don't worry about this. I'm going to go get a copy of the Quran from my house, an English copy, give it to you. And I spoke to him a little bit and I said to him, because um, uh, he, he was on a lunch break or something. And, I, and you know, subhanAllah, this guy had uh, polio or he had some sort of problem and um, he, he was a, a Catholic or a Christian of some sort. And it was actually hard for him to walk, but he walked to the masjid and that's the way he was treated. So I said to him, um, uh, okay, so if you come back at this time, I'm going to bring you a copy. And I also took his number and I was just like in pain. I was in pain. How can a non-Muslim walking into a masjid be shouted at because he was wearing shoes and be, be told by somebody leading the prayers that he wasn't the imam, but he's somebody who sometimes leads the prayers that no, we don't have a copy of the Quran. Um, so what happened is I went home, um, I got it. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think I text him as well in between that. Look, I'm going to be coming at this time. I came back and the guy never turned up. And I still remember that to this day. So it's not just that non-Muslims are treated badly and new Muslims are, are neglected. Um, it's, it's almost as if we are so far away from understanding the importance of dawah. We have no idea how to treat new Muslims. New, new Muslims should be treated as princess uh, as princes and 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 and, you know princesses and you know we should be laying out the red carpet for them you know but if you look at the horror stories that reverts go through especially the reverts who are you know um uh in in areas in which there there's a lot of cultural strong islam i say there's a uh, there's a culture uh, the culture of islam is stronger as in you have those countries with that particular type of culture which is Mm -hmm. not exactly in line with islam they get treated quite badly right so I, I think it's very important to be candid about these issues yeah yeah jazakallah khair for that addition 100 100 i um i haven't heard many of these horror stories or experienced it myself but i think that that you know maybe is that's another layer of the issue you know <laughs> we don't talk about it subhanallah but um uh, like wallah 100 it's <sighs> subhanallah but okay so my next question would be what do we do as muslims who know this problem to bring awareness to other Muslims and what do they do to make the issue better? Okay, the first thing we need to understand is we all love the Sunnah of the Prophet. You have to love the Sunnah. You have, to, I mean, why why do we grow a beard? We grow a beard not because it's cool, obviously it is, <laughs> but um it's because we believe in the prophets and we believe that what they did, we need to follow them in every step. But the prophets. We're conveying Islam. What do we find amongst all of the prophets in the Quran? We find Nuh alayhi salam and um, Ibrahim alayhi salam and Musa alayhi salam and the Prophet alayhi salam and Isa alayhi salam. All of the prophets, we don't find that Allah mentions their prayers and Allah mentions these things in details. What you find amongst all of them is that they were calling their nations. So if we're going to have beards, if we're going to do the other stuff, which is important, why wouldn't we do something that all of the prophets did. So 
I'm not afraid of saying this, and there may be some Muslims, and some Muslims actively discourage da'wah, and they say silly things like, you know, we need to get our own house in the order, uh, we can't do this, and no, we need to wait for, I don't know, Imam Mahdi. You know, people have weird ideas. The fact is, if you do not give da'wah, if you do not support those who give da'wah, if you do not facilitate the da'wah, if you do not have your heart in the da'wah, if you are not even concerned about the da'wah, then I would say you don't understand Islam. And this particular clip, please, if anybody disagrees, take this and absolutely refute me. I'm ready to debate this till the cows come home. If you do not believe in the da'wah, you do not understand Islam. Oh, there's, oh, if more people come to Islam, what are we going to do? You know, Muslims are doing this or that. That's ridiculous. All of these excuses are ridiculous. The fact is, if you believe something is true, why wouldn't you share it? And if we look back at the history of Islam, there are points in which there were amazing African du'at and Asian du'at and others who, through their small efforts, literally entire societies changed, right? Even we have amazing people like uh, Sheikh Abdurrahman Sumait, uh, who went to Africa and, you know, so many people accepted Islam. We have people, uh, you know, in, uh, there's a, there's a guy who, um, uh, in, in, in Pakistan, he's, he was a Hindu. He converted to, uh, Islam in the Sindh region. Then he started going from village to village and, and, you know, uh, getting people to, you know, hear the message of Islam and many people accepting with him. So we have these pockets of these amazing people, right? And what I also find sometimes strange is that Muslims would love to be, you know, they would love some sort of, even online, these sort of online dramas and these online sort of conflicts, right? So they would love to be, uh, you know, if I make a video, right, saying, you know, these three Muslims, yeah, I swear, you know, these guys, you know, bruv, I swear they're funded by the MI5 or CIA. And that's it, that video will go viral. But if I say, you know, since 1885 to 2020, Christianity grew by 50-fold, yet the African population grew by six-fold, and many, many Muslims are converting to Christianity in Africa. That, view, that video will probably get watched by five people and two jinns. No one cares, but we don't understand Islam. That's the problem. We, we focus on trivialities and we don't understand the importance of this message of Islam. If you don't understand uh, Islam, then of course you will not understand the importance of Dawah. 100%. So and there's something else that we talked about because what, it's amazing because this was the like the first few classes of the entire like 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 Dawa program. This is literally the basics. This is just going back to the basics kind of love us. And this is not advanced or sort of fiqh or anything. This is like the beginning of Islam. Like welcome to Islam. You got to teach this because the Prophet والسلام, said convey from me even even if it's one ayah. So this is a, a command from the Prophet والسلام. if all you know is one verse from the Quran teach it. Absolutely. One, one verse, subhanAllah. But you yeah. Know, I, I think it's important here to refute you, right? So, no. Okay, do you know this verse in Arabic? Can you recite this uh, verse, you know, off the top of your head? You know, you don't know Arabic. How can you, you know, give da'wah if you don't know Arabic? Okay, you know, have you studied Akida level 17? Do you know <laughs> the laws of inheritance? Like, these are the things you're going to hear. You're going to get passionate people like yourselves who are, mashallah, you know, conveying Islam online. And, you know, people are going to say, but you don't, but you don't, you don't know this. You don't know that. The fact is, is it important for me to be a, a hafiz of the Quran, for me to be able to convey to my neighbor that Allah does not have a son, right? Do I need that or do I just need the basic understanding of those verses? So, you know, alhamdulillah, here in London, um, you know, you get all sorts of experiences from people that have accepted Islam. I've met people who've accepted Islam while they were working in a bar. And the guy who was their manager was a Muslim. And, you know, he was talking to them about Islam. And they're both actually in this haram industry. And the Muslim carried on in that industry and the non-Muslim left. This isn't a hearsay. I've met this guy at Speaker's Corner who used to come there many years ago. This Portuguese brother doesn't come there anymore. You know, you get these types of things. You get even situations where, you know, a, a, a Muslim, uh, what's it called, uh, sister, you know, uh, she, uh, like one one example that I do know of is that there was this 
sister, this elderly uh, uh, Pakistani uh, sister, who basically uh, she gave a copy of the Quran to her neighbor, and he was like, like, what is this? Anyway, so he read it, he accepted Islam, and he goes around giving dawah. Like you get these amazing stories of these average people giving dawah, and then you get other people who will literally, oh, is that guy giving dawah? Let me just refute him with a bazooka. And I honestly think people are tools of the shaitan. They, they aren't doing something deliberately malicious, but they don't understand they actually are tools of the shaitan. And the shaitan is using them to actually stop Islam growing. And, you know, shaitan's very intelligent. Shaitan's got thousands of years of experience. We live for, like, what, 50, 60 years. And sadly, we're falling into these traps. Yeah, subhanAllah. Fayad. Do you have anything to uh, to jump in on here? I want to hear your thoughts. You know what's funny, bro? Yeah. As soon as you said that, look who went to the chat. <laughs> the big man, mashallah. Mm-hmm. The company, bro. Mm-hmm. Man took 20 minutes to pray the heart, mashallah. May Allah bless him. I mean, ya Rab. I mean. So uh, brother Anhil is a revert, mashallah. So he would be probably very, um, he'll probably have his own anecdotal experience and, and you know, um, wise words to add, inshallah. But until he gets in here, subhanAllah. Um, wallah, we I was going to answer your question. Do I have ahead, anything in mind? Um, yeah, first thing I wanted to say is, you're right, bro. When we were in class, we were learning that Islam is a complete way of life. It's a complete deen. And one of the biggest things that I'm ashamed of today in society is that, forget non-Muslims not realizing that. Muslims themselves don't realize what an immense gift that we were born into. Yeah. A hundred percent, bro. Assalamu alaikum, Anhel. Wa alaikum aslam, How you doing, bro? Alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. How are you guys? Alhamdulillah, ya Rab. We're good. Alhamdulillah, bro. Doing a little better after you showed up. MashaAllah. Oh. <laughs> we were just talking about um, the Ummah. Remember yesterday's class, we were talking about what is Islam and everything, right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about Islam is not just, you know, you pray and you fast and you believe in Allah, that's it. There's a layer to Islam that's, that starts at the basics, right? That people don't actually understand, which is this is a way. And in this way, we do X, Y, Z. It changes our character, who we are as people, the way we act. And in that, we convey this beautiful deen to people. That's like Islam 101. We're just talking about how, you know, also how we mentioned yesterday, a lot of people watered down the deen to we pray and khalas, that's it. This is exactly what we're talking about. So as, as a revert, have you experienced this level from Muslims where one, there's a contention against you just being a revert, you know, having tattoos and all this, or two, a level where it's like, you're a revert already propagating Islam. We're born Muslims. You're like, yeah, I go to university. I pray Dohor maybe on time. And like, that's it. Wait, so uh, what, what exactly are you asking, bro? Bro, that was a loaded question. Yeah, my yeah, yeah, that was. <laughs> I have a doing that. So, have you felt uh, or experienced any contention since you became a Muslim from the Muslims? Uh, can you use that in a sentence? Contentions. Contentions, like so, like uh, basically, like has anyone kind of attacked you or come against you because you're a revert? Ah, yes, yes, I've had uh, a lot of brothers and sisters leave messages saying that um i need to get rid of my tattoos now that i'm a muslim <laughs> that that allah doesn't love my tattoos i'm like yeah i'm sure allah doesn't love it but i'm a reaver like my sins have been you know washed away inshallah god willing and to get rid of all my tattoos like i don't think people understand how much money it takes and how much pain and time i have to go through like I have to, I think it, it it's well over a hundred and fifty thousand USD to get rid of all the tattoos that I have, and that's gonna take a span of minimum ten years. Like imagine what I could do with that much money to give back to people in this world. Just imagine, bro, how much money like could be put into charity, and that could even go into be building a masjid. So I'm going to choose getting rid of my tattoos, which Allah has already forgiven me for, versus actually building a masjid, doing charity, actually benefiting this dunya, this world, these, uh, these people, not just the brothers and sisters in the ummah, but the humans in general. Like, I, I don't know. To me, it's a very clear choice here. But 
to other people, they they attack me saying that, oh, brother, Allah does not love your tattoos, brother. I'm like, ah, it is what it is, man. You know, there's something uh, which we should all try and keep in mind that a person's um, words are a scoop of his heart. They're, they're like a little sort of flicker of what's going on. So if I'm sitting here and uh, you three guys are, uh, you know, you invite, you invited me on this podcast and whatnot, and, you know, you guys are doing this voluntarily and many people are learning about Islam and it's all this, but then I just happen to be fixated on, uh, you know, something trivial, like, Oh, why did this start late? You know, that type of thinking where you just focus on something so trivial and pathetic and mute and you forget the greater good is a common disease. And obviously it's come out in, in terms of this case, in terms of your tattoos or, or with other people, you know, but the fact is that this is because we get our priorities wrong. In all, um, in all of our discourses that even we have online, how many times do we get it? Uh, do, do we find that Muslims are arguing with each other on very petty issues? And they treat these petty issues like they are really significant. And sometimes they refute each other as well on these petty issues. Muhammad Ijab is a good way of, of putting it. He said it's the, um, it's the narcissism of pettiness, right? Uh, or it's the narcissism of small difference, right? And um, if we truly understood the value of the dawah and what we can actually do, we would, you know, not be wasting our time. So, okay, this guy did this. Let me fix it. I am sure any new Muslim who has tattoos or they had a previous relationship or they have a, a, a habit which they find hard to kick, like drinking or whatnot, I'm sure they know what they need to do with their life, right? I'm pretty sure because they made the choice to say la ilaha illallah and they sacrificed a lot. So I don't think they need a reminder in terms of these other types of things. But it's because we don't fundamentally understand Islam. And I do think there is a huge responsibility upon Islamic teachers, upon Islamic scholars, upon imams, upon community leaders, upon influentials to actually go back to basics. What is Islam really about? And can we please get our priorities in order? I sometimes jump onto YouTube and the sort of discussions I see back and forth. I honestly think, do people actually think that this is beneficial? The amount of conversations that you find, like even having this conversation with you, brother, you know, someone who messaged you, Allah doesn't love your tattoos. I'm sure they could spend their time doing a lot more productive things than that, right? Um, you know, sometimes you get the most bizarre things, you know, people being fixated on, oh, um, you know, uh, brother, you brothers were out there giving dawah and I noticed that you guys were wearing your shoes on but why do you do this and blah you get you get just people having petty arguments about all these things but fundamentally if we truly understood this message and we truly understood the power of this message we would be like an ambulance driver who is driving to save his patient and driving towards a hospital and if he finds two hobos at the side of the street that want to quabble with him he'll ignore them <laughs> he's not going to stop the ambulance get out and start having an argument with these guys that's mm. honestly how muslims should be they should have a sharp laser uh, focus on what they want to achieve and get away from these you know the, these absolute trivial issues that's what i said Allah. that's what i, I uh, said last thing i want to jump in on here because actually unfortunately i do have to leave um i do want to say that this is a beautiful discussion and it's actually very very important so all the muslims watching please reflect on this inshallah and everything the brothers say here today I want to say that I believe it starts with, with a few things, as we talked about, going back to the basics. Learn Islam and learn it in the sense that you know you're going to teach it. Because we have this concept called uh, of, of yaqeen, of certainty in Islam. And they've actually done studies. This is something my sheikh was telling me about. They've done studies that show somebody, when they're 100% certain of doing something versus the person who's 99% sure, the entire like neurochemistry changes in their brain. The way their brain works literally changes for that 1% because there's a difference between yaqeen 
and most likely when you're searching you're going to teach islam and that's how you're learning it world difference and it's going to do two things it's going to increase your intellect your knowledge and two it's going to change your character so you become that person you become literally more like the prophets more like the sahaba and at the end of the day if like when in doubt just please when to look at when looking at a revert remember most of the great sahaba radiallahu anhum or at least a lot of them especially the greatest ones were all reverts they had yeah. the jahiliyyah. Not even was Ali radiallahu anhu who accepted it as a kid. Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, uh, Khalid ibn Walid who fought against the Muslims for so long radiallahu anhum. They, they became Muslim as grown uh, Muslims as grown men. And then they, they made these worldwide changes. So with that, uh, unfortunately I do have to go. May Allah bless you all. I love you all for the sake of Allah. Uh, and inshallah I look forward to speaking to you guys soon. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum yeah, he's right though. I mean, like, uh, I will very often like look at what I'm doing in my life, and I'll be like, "Oh man, like, I'm, I got so much on my plate. Like, I'm doing so much right now." But then, like, when I really think about it, I'm like, "Man, look at look at the Prophet wasallam. Look at the companions. Like, these were proper men. Like, they did it all, and they were on Dean, and they were on Islam. It's just perfect. Like, they were just." proper individuals and i'm like man like i could you know what i'm not doing enough actually i think i'm doing too much no no i'm not doing enough compared to these men so i gotta step it up a notch yeah and i gotta say bro before you even go in you got a very peaceful vibe (laughs) and may allah bless you brother that's not the way atheists feel about me though Hey, it is what it is, man. It, it is, is what, what it is. is. It is what it is. You know what's interesting is um, if if we look at football, right? I'm, I'm not sure if you guys are football fans, but, but I'm sure you know about football fans. You know, you get football fans who literally will argue with each other all day. You know, my team is better than yours. We only lost because, you know, our guy was on sick leave or, you know, this goalkeeper is a sellout or whatever it is. And people have these debates. Why? Because they believe in the team. They believe in something that's greater than them. And there's an interesting psychology to this, that human beings, we need an immortality project, right? (laughs) Basically, we need an idea or a philosophy or something which is greater than ourselves so we can attach ourselves to that, which is why what you find is that some people find that in nationalism, they're very nationalistic. Some people find that in joining, you know, um, a particular ideology like communism. Other people, they make human rights into a type of religion and they just become activists. And, you know, that's their main thing, you know. The Nazis uh, were one extreme example of that, where, you know, people started believing in, you know, this type of ideology and were willing to give up everything for it. So human beings need this immortality project, something greater than themselves. They need, you know, this idea that there's something beyond me. I am one cog in this giant thing, but I am part of something greater. And Islam, that's what it does. It teaches you, you are not alone. You are part of the legacy of Ibrahim salam. You are part of the legacy of the Muslims who are going to exist hundreds of years from now. You know, what you're doing today is because of the work of the people pre- previously to you. And what you're doing today is planting the seeds for the people of the future. And, you know, that transcendence, that's what we really want to feel. And, you know, you, you spoke about not, not uh, doing enough for the deen. You know, I believe one of the ways to drive yourself to do more for the religion is actually by studying Islamic history. It's actually studying the spread of Islam is looking at not only the stories of the prophets, you know, going back to how Ibrahim was a young man. He had to go against all of his society. He was thrown into the fire and, you know, the fire became cool, cool to him, but go all the way to, you know, how did, how did all these Muslims appear in central Asia? How do the Mongols become Muslim? You know, how is it that you have um, Han Chinese uh, people who are Muslim? How is it that we have Hui Muslims? How do we? How is it that we have these Uyghur Muslims? How did the people of the Hausa, uh, the Hausa people uh, in northern Nigeria, how do they accept Islam? When you start looking into these, you're like Allahu Akbar. There is an amazing history here, 
And that will drive you forward to take more actions as well. That's interesting because we had um, we had Dr. Steph Karras on a few times. You know the brother? Yes, yes, of course. Yeah, mashallah, may Allah bless him. But he's got such a profound knowledge on Islamic history. And um, you know what? Now that I'm like retracing the steps, like he, he pretty much says the same thing. And he says how important the, the knowledge of the history is for Muslims to study. Like it's not just like a history lesson. It's not like, oh, we're in school, we're classes in session here. This is what happened. So, you know, so history doesn't repeat itself. No, no, no. It, it's so you know even further. So you can become a better Muslim. So you can uh, give more uh, from your part. You know, so I, I really like that. I really do. Absolutely. 100% bro 100% which reminds me man we gotta have Dr. Steph Kares back mm-hmm. so um, Subo Ahmed there was uh, one main thing that I wanted to ask you so from the debate that I found you right with Cosmic Skeptic about objective morality right how would you define objective morality to a layman somebody who's like you know what does that mean objective morality isn't there just normal morality right good question um, so what I would say is by pointing out the opposite. So I would say to them that you liking a particular ice cream flavor. So if you like, you know, strawberry or raspberry or mango or kulfi or whatever it is, you like a particular thing. Is that something which is true? Is that something like this is the best flavor? Is that just your opinion? Is that just, um, you know, your preference? They'll say, no, me liking a particular ice cream flavor is just my preference. Now, if someone else turns around and says, no, actually, I really like vanilla ice cream, you know, somebody else, a judge can't come in between somebody who likes mango ice cream and vanilla ice cream and say, he is correct and you are wrong, because these are preferences. There is no right or wrong in preferences. These are just subjective, um, you know, opinions we hold what if i was to say to the person well in the same manner what if somebody considered that killing stealing you know kicking old people just any random evil is actually just as meaningless just as subjective just a preference in the same way that, you know, we like a particular ice cream flavor. So whether you want to give charity to a homeless person or kick a homeless person, you want to do good or you want to do bad, it's like vanilla and it's like mango. Uh, you know, it's, it's preferences people have. And the normal reaction that people are going to have is an aversion to that. They're going to be quite disgusted by that. They're going to be like, no, something's not right about that. You know, there's something true, you know, helping somebody who's poor, as opposed to hurting them, mm. helping them is good. This is bad. This isn't a preference thing. This isn't a flavor thing. Mm. This isn't a subjective thing. There is something objective about mm. it. Another way of putting it is, you know, someone says, well, I like, you know, vanilla. And somebody else says, I like mango. And I'm like, I like one plus one equaling five. And my maths teacher says it's one plus one is two. But, you know, that's just his preference. Again, someone will say, no, these are two different things. So choosing a flavor of the ice cream is, again, subjective. But your opinion about one plus one is five or someone else thinks one plus one is minus seven, that's irrelevant to the truth that one plus one is two. There is an objective truth out there which is independent of your subjective ideas, your preferences. So morality from a atheistic view, from a materialistic view, from the idea that there is no God is as meaningless and as baseless as someone's preference for a flavor of ice cream. Mm. That's pretty disturbing. It's especially disturbing because the loudest people on earth today who point the finger at religious people and say, you are immoral, your religion is immoral, are actually people who are atheists 
and they use the morality card probably the most, although interestingly enough, the most brutal people in the history of the world have been atheists like Chairman Mao and Stalin and Lenin and Pol Pot and, you know, all of these despots were atheists. They, they were, you know, people who even Xi Jinping, the current, you know, dictator in China, you know, all of the horrible things he's doing, he's an atheist as well. So, you know, even though atheists have been the most cruelest in history and in terms of pure stats, the amount of people they've killed have, in just the last hundred years, has far outstripped all the people that were killed in all of the religious wars in human history, right? The atheists in one century alone have killed more people than all the religious people in human history, um, yet they want to point the finger at us by something that they cannot justify. So, you know, the whole discussion started off with Cosmic Skeptic by something very simple. I made a video in which I said human rights is something atheists should not speak about because human rights do not exist because morality does not exist. It's just a preference. He took that video and he made a response. And then once he made the response, I'm somebody who I don't believe in. And you, you guys probably noticed this, right? You get these online atheists, right, who make these videos with pictures and animation and good lighting. I mean, look at us. We look possessed, you know, bad lighting and this and that. But you get these people with amazing looking, you know, studios and this and that. And they're talking and they're very scripted. And I've always seen those people crumble when you bring them face to face and you challenge them directly. So that's what my intention was. And that's not my intention with only him, but any atheist, you know, someone who tries to say this or that. I don't like going back and forth and making response videos. I'm like, all right, bring it on. Let's have a discussion live. So that's how the discussion began and it ended up, uh, you know, as a debate at the Oxford University. Hmm. I have the point home further, bro. It's like anyone listening, guys and girls, it's like, it's like stealing. You know it's wrong. Even if you're doing it, you can justify it. You can rationalize it like, oh, I need the money. Oh, you know, God will understand me. It's like, no, nah, you know it's wrong. Right. And the, the point you touched on with subjective morality, it's almost like we live in a godless society where I hear phrases like it doesn't align with my truth. OK, what is your truth, though? Well, it doesn't align with my feelings, my intuition. What is that? Where do you draw the line between subjective and objective? Right. So that's something people people got to know. However, I just ask everybody to consider some of the popular atheists online. Right. Uh, the guys with those nice studios and those nice uh, you know, um, animation and all this effort. Watch those guys in their studios when they're talking with confidence and power and energy and passion and all of this drive and watch them when they are speaking to the brothers live <laughs> or if, if they're in debates. And that's the thing that you find that, you know, when these people are making their videos on their own, they, mm. they try and come across as, you know, being really assertive and confident. But, you know, when the truth goes against falsehood, falsehood comes on its knees and you see it live. Mm. So, you know, I would say that you obviously brought up one YouTuber. I would say, you know, whenever these types of people appear, uh, these types of militant atheists um, and even these militant Christians like David Wood, you know, he's on his, I'm sure you guys seen the debate with um, hijab, but before his debate, you know, I used to just, this guy used to come up on my live stream uh, on, on, on the, you know, your YouTube, whatever it is. And the guy used to be like talking with so much confidence and energy and passion. But then with hijab, he was just like, he was like a kid getting bullied. And while he's getting time. <laughs> Sorry? You're talking about hammer time or who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's talking about hammer time. You know, you just watch that debate between hijab and David Wood and look at his body language and, and the way that he's speaking and the tone of his voice and his nervousness. And that's the thing. That's the thing that when you get these people, there is such a discrepancy between the confidence they show when they're in their comfortable room making videos and when they actually have to go toe-to-toe -to -toe, toe -to -toe with Muslims. Because at the end of the day, you know, whether it's the field of Badr or it's an online discussion, the truth comes out. <laughs> you know, people get rattled. People actually really 
you see them crumble before the uh, the sort of arguments that are being made. And you also find that when you have Iman, when you have faith, when you have this drive, you see that come across whether you're in a nice lit studio or you're in a live discussion at Speaker's Corner or in a live thing. But these guys are artificial. They have to create this type of artificial environment to make themselves look a particular way. You know, mm. I was laughing at these, um, you know, that APOS guy. Uh, he, he came onto the um, uh, Thought Adventure podcast. Thought Adventure, yeah. It was horrible. I mean, I got secondhand embarrassment <laughs> watching that. And what if you watch his videos on his own, you know, he's talking like this with, you know, so much energy and this and that. And you would think that this guy is a flipping lion. You know, this guy needs to be, you know, he, you know, we need to protect ourselves from him. But then when he comes out, he's a toothless animal. He's just literally like, you know, I don't understand. And in the middle of talking to Daniel Akikachu, that the guy's almost having like an anxiety attack. Like, don't, don't pretend to be a world-class, you know, boxer or fighter and then turn up in the ring and then you just look like a flipping anorexic pensioner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you need to, you know, uh, I can tell, brother uh, Angel, that you're from a background that people call your bluff, right? People oh, yeah. can tell if your talk matches your actions, right? With these online guys, it doesn't. Mm. Oh, isn't that right, Angel? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, on a side note, on a side note, uh, my name is pronounced Angel. Angel. Well, Angel. I just say that because yeah, everyone. No worries, no worries. Angel. Yeah, but most people they butcher it, so I I don't even get upset. But brother, <laughs> I got two things, man. I got two things. So number one, with David Wood, ask Fayed, ask Rami. Wallahi, we did a, a reaction video with a uh, Sheikh, uh, Uthman Ibn Farouk. And uh, just when he was talking with David Wood and with all the other, the, the little squad that they had. The Trinity. The Trinity. We'll call it the Trinity. All right, we'll call it the Trinity. But the, the thing that I said, I, I did not say this, but I said, I said, look, look at his body language. Allah Akbar. Look at his body language. And it's like, bro, as the, the conversation progressed, you see the shake and he remains in the same frame. He, he, it doesn't change. It's, it's the same. And then... You see David Wood, and I was only focused on David Wood, so I, I only brought attention to that. But every time that this was going on, like as the conversation went on and on, you saw the anxiety arising. <laughs> you saw the insecurity arising. And it's just like, oh, man, like that's that's sad, man. And then number two, you were talking about Apos and how he uh, he's basically, you said, a, a toothless animal. A toothless yeah. animal, am I correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, bro, he... um. I think Fayad has sent it to me, but he had, I think he put a post or something where he said that he's uh, pretty much put every single Muslim in their place or like no one stood a chance against him. Like he, he said that he <laughs> made, he said he made Muhammad hijab look like he was nothing or something like that. I'm like, bro, what is this guy? Like, where is he at right now? Like what, what's going on in his head? Yeah. It's like, yeah. All right. Sit down, have a sandwich. Yeah. Well done. His analysis is, uh, is brilliant. You know, someone could say with some level of plausibility that Apus is potentially a Muslim who wants to discredit the ex-Muslim movement. So he's pretending to be an ex-Muslim. I mean, if someone was to make that argument, I would say, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I say, hmm, you've got maybe you're onto something there. Oh, like I'm actually pretty happy that he's the most popular ex-Muslim online. I'm, like, it's like okay, you know, that's that's the guy that that's you know that's what you want people to come towards. Yeah, man. I mean, I'm I'm glad, man. Like that's that's the best that the ex-Muslim community could do. Where did he get that name, by the way? A puss. Uh, Muhammad Hijab was mm. calling him a pusillanimous. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, so yeah, you know, you know, Muhammad Hijab comes up with the best, uh, best type of insult. So uh, then he, instead of calling him a pusillanimous, he started calling him a puss. And then what happened is, over time, everybody forgot his name. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and they started calling him apos and then uh, in his discussion and, and that's the thing how 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 ridiculous uh, this guy is if you're in a discussion and something pees you off right mm. you're in a debate and something somebody says really pees you off you never ever show your cards you don't show them that that's something that irritates you but apos in the debate you know he's like don't call me apos it's like all right if you in a debate are going to throw a tantrum and say don't call me apos then muhammad hijab the next word out of his mouth is going to be apos relax or apos whatever <laughs> like he doesn't understand yeah. basic psychology he doesn't understand basics of debating apos listen i'm telling you right in front of you don't call me apos okay debating is not you know you don't just say whatever you feel you know it's it's an arena it it's a place where you got to you know, you got to battle, you got to put on your battle face, you got to, you know, use certain tactics, you got to trap mm. your opponent, you got to do certain things, you got to be aware of his attack and then your counter attack. And, you know, and you know, I look at, I mean, Alhamdulillah, I, I spend a lot of time looking at debates and, you know, how, how they happen. And then you look at people, Apos, and you're literally like in a, the equivalent of a street fight between, you know, people like Apos, David Wood, and then Hijab and others is is literally like, you know, a bulldozer versus, you know, an ostrich egg. <laughs> there's, there's, there's no competition. And you sometimes think, you know, in movies, and I'm sure you guys know this, if in the movie the hero doesn't take some beating before he wins, if the hero just walks into an area, beats the crap out of everybody, but never goes through some pain or... So that like Superman has kryptonite or Batman, you know, he, he sometimes looks like he's losing, you know, that makes the movie more interesting because it's kind of like, all right, the hero's about to lose or the hero's wounded. And then he comes back as an underdog just right at the last moment and wins. You know, it always makes us, you know, oh, wow. But in these debates, we don't get to see that. We just see a way mauling. <laughs> we just see a one collision. And you sometimes think, Maybe it should have been a bit more, you know, buffles. Mm-hmm. It's like Habib. Habib, how he was just uh, mauling all his opponents. But um, it, it kind of raises the question, like, how big of an ego do these individuals really have? You know, because like, if, if you get a problem with someone, like, let's say you get Muhammad Ijab. Uh, he's having a discussion with someone. Listen, I don't know the brother. I know he's Muslim, though. I know he's proper. I know he's uh, he's well well like up here he's studied he's academic all right you get him in a debate if something comes up where muhammad job genuinely doesn't know i'm sure he's not gonna just try to like make this bluff and like just go on with some running lie of like oh this is this and this is that and try to act like he knows what he's talking about when he genuinely doesn't know he'll probably be like oh i, I don't know I, i'll have to get back to you on that but you get people that have these big egos, these atheists, and it's like they genuinely don't know what they're talking about, but their ego is so strong and so inflated that they're like, nah, 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 I can't let this go. I can't <laughs> let this go. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point you raise because, you know, in a debate or a discussion, if someone says something you don't understand, you can just say, all right, fair enough. Mm-hmm. Well, that's it that's the easiest way of dealing with that but like you said what other people do is they start digging a hole and i've noticed this at speaker's corner when dealing with some of these militant atheists they'll dig a hole you notice they're digging a hole they don't know that you've noticed yeah like Lawrence Krauss. <laughs> yeah and they just keep digging mm-hmm. and then by the time you point out to them they actually about 10 foot under and they're staring up at you like Oh damn! That, like I, 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 if I, if someone pointed that out like a minute ago, I would have realized that I'm actually shooting myself in the foot. And especially one thing which I like to do in philosophy, one of the golden medals, if you like, is to show a self-contradiction. And that's something which I really like doing with uh, these militant atheists because, you know, if you show that they are self-contradictory that they aren't actually saying something coherent because they disagreed with themselves somewhere else. Um, I mean, it's, it's just an own goal, right? So that's one of the things which I think in the Dawa as well, if, if you're having these types of formal debates, uh, Muslim Muslims should be utilizing more. I also don't, um, 
and this is my sort of advice uh, to people who want to get into this. If you're dealing with an average person, average atheist, average non-Muslim, you be nice, polite, kind, gentle, you know, all of those things. But what we're here speaking about is Islamophobes and militant atheists and, you know, these types of anti-theists. So that's why you get that sort of battle. Sometimes some Muslims, they think, okay, that means everyone's treated that way, which is not true at all. These discussions are with a niche group of people and the average person that you're debating, a non-Muslim about God or this or that, you know, you have to have a totally different demeanor, right? Um, and I think that's very important to highlight because some people just don't make the distinction, which is why I sometimes get worried about some of these, you know, high tension debates that take place and the repercussions of them because some people can just misunderstand totally that mm. that's not the way you talk to an average person. Mm. So with that being said, if the two questions I have well, is one merged into two, but um, how would people go about handling atheists that aren't militant? And then how would they go about handling the atheists that are militant? Okay, so the first thing to note is in your, if you're dealing with a militant atheist, what I mean by militant atheist is somebody who is a <laughs> atheist evangelist, not just mm -hmm. someone who has strong views on atheism. I don't mean that. Meaning that, and I would say for the average... What do you, what do you mean by evangelist? As in, they would promote it, they would ridicule religion, they would actively, um, you know, be a representative of it, which is why the vast majority of Muslims will never really interact, though we interact with those types of militant atheists, right? The type of atheist they will interact with is just somebody who doesn't believe in God, has strong views on that. So with them, you're gentle, you're kind, you're trying to bring them around, you're trying to be sympathetic. At the same time, you're saying to them, look, Islam has this belief that, you know, we believe in God and we believe belief in God is natural and rational. And if you do believe in God, this is what you get. If you don't believe in God, these are the consequences. And you're, you're, you're direct and clear with them. But, you know, formal debates have a very niche purpose, which are done by select group of people and they should never transfer into your common, <laughs> your common discourse online and offline. And I think that's a huge danger, which is why uh, the sort of discussions that we see, um, uh, the good discussions that we see in, in Speaker's Corner where Mansoor and Hashim will take this atheist and they'll sit on the floor, uh, on the grass, and they'll discuss or... You know, you get these other YouTubers who are having these really pleasant conversations on the street in Leicester Square, in New York, other places. They're giving out food or donuts or other stuff and they're having discussions. Um, you know, all that stuff is wonderful because that is the average person that you're going to be interacting with. So how, how are they going to deal with those that are coming real strong, the evangelists? Well, I would say that, you know, you you have to understand their worldview quite thoroughly and then break it down. Mm. I would highly advise, right? And I've seen this myself. Some people get into these discussions with these militant atheists and they don't know what they're talking about. The Muslims don't know what they're talking about. Or they know what they're talking about, but they don't have the debating skills to actually come across quite well to actually articulate and they even though they may be making valid points it looks like they're losing because they just don't know how to talk right so i would advise that if you are to tackle an atheist on any issue say you're having a debate of, of some sort you need to understand their worldview better than them you need to have plan a plan b plan c you need to have this inter interweb of Okay, if they say this, then you're going to say this. If they say this, if you're going to say this. If they bring this thing that you haven't heard of, then what are you going to do? Like you have to plan it all out like a strategy. You have to all, you know, you have to think of it as a grand plan. You know, um, if you go into, like, obviously we don't say that these uh, mixed martial arts are halal in any way. However, you know, if you, if you are watching, um, 
you know, a, a fight, a brutal fight between uh, two people. One guy just wants to punch the other guy with his right arm. And that's his main thing that he wants to do. No matter what the other guy is doing, this guy is just trying to punch him uh, with his right hand. That's it. You know that that guy is going to lose. That guy is going to lose. Why? Because he's got one plan and that's all he wants to do. The other guy is evolving, adapting, changing. He is he's like water he's flowing and seeing where are the opportunities where are the threats what do i do right and that person is way more likely to win because he's got all of these different strategies how do you get that in a militant uh, debate debate between a muslim and say militant atheist well you have to understand and have a deep understanding of their worldview so then you can know all of the different things that you can do and don't and this is very important. You know, back in the days, I used to watch wrestling. And uh, I used to be a big fan of ECW and, you know, all these types of things. And they used to, you know, these other wrestling sort of platforms, they used to have this thing, don't try this at home. Do you guys remember that? Used to be those things like, you know, because, you know, people start doing pile drivers through, you know, sofas and, you know, all <laughs> these types of things. Um, you know, I remember doing a somersault and, uh, you know, d- uh, breaking <laughs> the sofa in my front front living room you know people do all sorts of crazy so these debates that you see online between say a militant atheist or, or one like hijab or whatever some people think okay i've seen that let me go find somebody and let me repeat that again don't try this at home you really need to know what you're doing and uh, you know, I, i'd recommend books like hamza's book the divine reality um but never ever go into uh a, a discussion like this unless you really know what you're doing mm-hmm. bro quick question are you pakistani yes okay alhamdulillah mashallah <laughs> that, biggest... hmm? that was a short answer cool um my, maybe a longer answer to this question of all the issues and cancers that you've been talking about in the ummah today right not with islam but with the muslims that we see today in our approach to giving dawah one main issue that I've been seeing left, right, and center is this unhealthy obsession to nationalism. And I think that every single person to some degree, if they're just programmed and they don't really unplug from, from their, you know, software setting, so to speak, they, they carry out this, this, and they exercise this nationalism. So what is, what is this all about? How do we tackle this? What are the, the issues with, with nationalism? Okay, very good. I would say, again, let's go back to discussing Iman discussing islam people understanding islam you know when we look at these nation states and the borders right we need to ask ourselves a question does iman does faith have borders no faith doesn't have borders so we should be happy and comfortable and say yes i'm pakistani i'm sudanese i'm bangladeshi i'm turkish i'm algerian i'm fijian or whatever but you should never ever believe that your country is better than another country you know a pakistani should happily say you know i love bangladesh i love afghanistan sudan turkey whatever and you know these types of tribalistic uh tendencies which we do have you know they are toxic they are literally toxic because you know where does it end it doesn't just end with say a pakistani nationalist right may think they're better than a bangladeshi or an indian or an afghan or an afghan may think they're better than whatever right uh like we had this you know during world war uh one where you had this turkish nationalism and arab nationalism and this type of thing but then when you go to the country itself are they all the same people you go to pakistan it's got patans right uh it's got Punjabis, Scott Balochis, Sindhis, Mahajas, Rohingya, Bangladeshis, you know, all these different types of people. Then it's going to be like, well, you know, I don't like Punjabis or I don't like Patans or I don't like this. And then where do you stop? And then when you're within one group of people, like say the Patans, then amongst the Patans, they'll be like, yeah, but they're from the Afridi tribe or they're from, you know, this Ahmadzai tribe or whatever. And then it's just, okay, then it's, you know, more and more tribalism. And you find this. You know, in Muslim countries, you find that if this nationalism is not curtailed, then it turns into tribalism in which Muslims are each other's throats at even the tribal level, even the district level, right? 
um, you know, for example, if you go to Pakistan, you have a different culture in Lahore to Karachi to, you know, these types of things. As Muslims, all of this is garbage. All of this is absolute nonsense, right? You should be proud of being a Muslim. And if you have a love for your country, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. If you love your food and you believe your food is better than others, right? Uh, you know, and, and it's, it's done in this very lighthearted way, like, oh, our food is better than yours. Or, you know, you have this sometimes discussion among South Asians who has the best dal you know, a lighthearted way, who, you know, who cares? That's, that stuff is fine. But this type of nationalism is a disease, is something which we should openly speak up against. And we should openly um, address this question uh, to the new Muslims as well and say to them, look, when you come to Islam, you will get this. You will get some Muslims who, you know, think they're better than others because they're from a certain country, but you should know this is not part of Islam at all because Iman has no borders. MashaAllah. Hmm. That's true. I got a question. It's a little off topic, but you have mentioned Speaker's Corner a lot. How often are you at Speaker's Corner? Um... I've been going Speaker's Corner for about 11 years now. And I don't go as regularly as I used to, but I still watch the stuff, right? I, I would like to go more often, um, but, you know, work commitments, other things come up and stuff. Um, but the reason why I love it is because it's like a battle of ideas, right? Everyone brings their ideas to the table and then it's like, all right, let's see who wins. And the people you meet in Speaker's Corner are not normal people. <laughs> They're not, you sometimes come across tourists and others who are like normal people and you discuss with them. But usually you get very opinionated, strong debaters and everyone's there to just have a debate and discussion. And if two people spoke to each other in Speaker's Corner and agreed, I reckon everyone would just ignore them <laughs> the reason why people love it is because two people come together and there's a spark where they argue and they disagree and they go toe to toe and i think i don't know why but I, i've always been attracted to that type of you know that type of uh, environment it's like it's like fighting but it's like mental fight it's like intellectual <laughs> and yeah. yeah exactly he would think ah yeah like my plan is aligned with Allah's plan because everything is functioning so smoothly. But then out of nowhere, there's a sticking point and like nothing's happening. And to him, he's like going crazy and he, he's pretty much second doubt or second guessing, doubting and uh, just chaotic for lack of better words. But it's in that time where he needs to be as patient as possible and continue to trust in the creator and continue to do whatever it is he started doing, keeping the same energy that he started with in order for him to pass the test. Mm -hmm.